Let's pray before we look into God's word. Father, I thank you for your word and the fact that it's truth and that it is filled with truth for us so that we can learn and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time we can share together. God the Spirit, you be our teacher and guide. Help us to know and understand the truth and not only to have it mentally, but to have it affect us spiritually so that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your help and presence. In Jesus' name, amen. The last time we were in the book of Colossians, we looked at the first six verses and dealt with the whole concept of prayer and the importance of prayer and the fact that Paul was not so confident in himself that he didn't need prayer. And we'll see as we get to the end of the book, he again asks for prayer. And uh, we all need to pray. And as we go through here, we'll be looking and seeing that we, we have a great responsibility as believers to be praying for one another. <clears throat> and uh, it's vital and important. I, I just want to deal with three things in this uh, section here. The first is what I call the characteristics of the faithful. The characteristics of the faithful. And we find these in verses 7 through 9. Let me just remind you that the characteristics we'll be talking about should be characteristics of us as believers. We should be the kind of people who bear these kind of characteristics and they should be continually growing as we grow in Christ-likeness. We should, these characteristics should be part of our lives and part of our growing maturity in Jesus Christ. And let me remind you again that none of this can happen unless we obey the first two commands we saw in chapter 3. And the first command is to keep seeking Christ in his majesty and his authority and in his role as our intercessor at the right hand of God. And I think these two things, these two commands and obedience to them are probably the most difficult for us because we get so involved in this world that we live in. And uh, we find that it's difficult to find time to set aside and seek Christ. We're so busy. We got a, a business, well, we got families, we got things to do. Uh, how am I going to find that time? And we find that it's uh, easier just to slip across it or just read a quick devotional and, uh, uh, okay, we're okay, instead of keeping seeking Christ. I think I mentioned this, but 
I get mag uh, catalogs from Christian book distributors all the time. And uh, uh, they were offering a special deal on, on devotional book, uh, five-minute five minute devotions. Next month they came out with another offer on a devotional book, one-minute devotions. Uh, uh, I think most of the people have opted for the next no-minute devotions, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I believe that it's for our spiritual well-being to get focused on Christ, to keep focused on Him. And let me just say, this doesn't only happen in our times where we're alone with the Lord, but it should be the whole tenor of our life. That everything I do, everything I say, everything I think, I should be communicating in my heart and mind with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, Lord, help me to fry this egg this morning so I don't mess it up like I usually do. You know, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, we, we, we need to keep constant communion and fellowship with the Lord whether it's on your job or wherever you are. And then the other thing, and, and this is even more difficult, I think, is the second command we saw there, and that's to be focused on the eternal. Not on the temporal, but on the eternal. Uh, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And it's so easy to love this world and the things of the world. And John in his epistle tells us, love not the world, neither the things of the world. For if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. So we need to be focused on the eternal. Uh, sometimes uh, when you're going through physical difficulties or something in that area, it's difficult <laughs> to focus on the eternal. But uh, we always remember that, like Paul said, what's going on here is just momentary, but the joy is to come. The joy is to come. So as we, as we think of the, these characteristics, we have to also re realize the responsibility we have to maintain our relationship, and our focus. And it's very important. Now, the first thing I want to look at is what I call the responsibilities of Tychicus. By the way, if I get some of these names mixed up, it's that I'm not a Greek by nature, so uh, uh, they're, they're not easy. But Tychicus uh, is one of Paul's interesting characters. Tychicus is a man who uh, we don't hear much about in the New Testament, except he is found, his name is found in five places in the New Testament. His name is found in the book of Acts, uh, <coughs> in Acts Chapter uh, uh, 
20 and verse 4. And he's just listed with a whole bunch of uh, Paul's other companions there. And then we find him listed here and in Ephesians 6.21 and uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4.12 and Titus 3.12. And you will find in those last four, he is sent by Paul on a specific mission. And so he is sent on a specific mission to the church at Colossae. And uh, he has a responsibility. If you look at the first part of verse 7, his responsibility there is to communicate Paul's situation, his personal situation, what, what the situation is with Paul. And that may, that may seem something quite simple to us, but just think of all these people who have, and the churches who have been ministered to by Paul and many of the church planted, many of the churches planted by Paul and they know the trouble that he's in in Rome, that he is to use his own word, in chains. And he is a prisoner, and it's interesting. We would say that he was a prisoner of Caesar, and Paul doesn't see that. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm here because this is where Jesus wants me. And he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So these people were concerned with Paul and Paul's situation, so he sent Tychicus uh, to, to take care of that need. And then there was a second responsibility he had. And we find that in, in verse 8. It says, and he's dealing here with the people's personal needs. He says, whom I sent you toward this purpose. In other words, this is the purpose I had in mind when I sent him, <clears throat> in order that he might know concerning you. In other words, I, I, I think we have to understand in that phrase that what the Apostle Paul says, that he was going to find out concerning you what your situation is, what your spiritual needs are, and so on, and we'll see a little later what he does with that, but he would also take it back to Paul because you remember Paul said in the, earlier in the book of Colossians that I pray for you regularly. That I pray for you regularly. And it's hard to pray for people if you don't know their situation, isn't it? And so Paul says, I need to know your situation so I can really pray for you. And that's one of the benefits of being a fellowship of God's people, you see. We can get to know each other so we can pray for each other and know each other's needs. And sometimes I think we're a little bit afraid to let people know we have needs. You know, we're standing strong, you know. Uh, and uh, it, it's always good to know that God's people 
are praying for God's people. And they, they need uh, uh, to uh, know that. Uh, I just uh, sent an email and got an email back from uh, a mission group that I pray for. And I said, uh, I, I, I don't know about this request, if it's fair or logical. I said, but uh, all of the couples that I pray for have children, but I don't know their names, so how can I pray for their children? I said, is it possible to give me the names of the children so I can pray for them? See, I can be more specific and specific, not specific, specific, and, and pray for them because I know them by name now. Before, I would pray, bless so-and-so's children. But now I, I can say, bless Juliet, Rosette, whatever their names are, you see. And I have some kind of connection. And so it's important to know the situation of believers. So that's the responsibility of Tychicus to do that. Now, I want you to notice secondly here the reason he is sending Tychicus. The question is, why would Paul send Tychicus? He doesn't seem to be one of the prominent guys. You know, he's not a Titus or a Timothy or uh, one of these uh, that you hear of all the time. Why, why Tychicus? And uh, uh, um, as I said, he's not mentioned that often, but he always is sent with a special task. For example, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, Ephesians 6, 21 and 22, he says, But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, again, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort or encourage your hearts. So notice, notice the twofold ministry there that Tychicus has. He is to make them aware of Paul's needs, but he is also to minister to them spiritually. And that's vital and important. So, <clears throat> it's uh, important, and Paul explains in this passage why he sends Tychicus. Why he is sending him, why he's sending him to all these places, and it's because of his Christ-like characteristics because he has learned to live and walk in the things of Jesus Christ. He is one that has grown in the things of Christ. And I, I think uh, it's, it's a challenge to us uh, 
that as we live and grow in the things of Jesus Christ, we can become more useful in the service of God. We can be used for Him and for His glory. And so it's, it's an incumbent thing upon us to seek to become more Christ-like so that we can be more useful and effective in the ministries to which God has called us. Now, I want you to notice the spiritual qualities here that he speaks of regarding Tychicus. He says in verse 7, it says, A beloved brethren, brother, excuse me, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord, and he will tell you. First of all, what I call his acceptance. He says he's a beloved brother. Brother. He's a beloved brother. Now, that statement has dual implication. First of all, he's beloved because he was loved of God. He couldn't be beloved in the assembly of God's people in the sense that he's talking about here with divine love for him. He couldn't be that unless he first and foremost was loved by God. In 1 John 4 and 10 it says, 1 John 4 and 10, it says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You see, it all starts with God. Everything starts with God. Uh, I was listening to a message that I heard uh, many years ago by a gentleman named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, he preached for an hour and 15 minutes on two words in Ephesians. But... God. It's all God and what God does. It's all God and what God does. And that's what he says here. Uh, he, he was loved by God and therefore he could love because he was loved by God. And the second part of this that's vital and important for us is the fact that uh, uh, beside the fact that it all begins with God's love it's God's provision of love for us. In that passage we read uh, Bob read earlier it says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the old King James but the better, better version is, it's been poured out. God didn't just give us a drop of love. He poured it out. He poured it out. It's been poured out in our hearts. When we came to know Christ, when we were born again, you see, that's First John, then the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He poured it out. He poured it out. So, this is... God's 
abundant provision for us. Have you ever felt with some Christians, I don't know if I can love that guy. I must confess I have. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, it's important to realize that God has given us a great abundance of love so we can love anybody. Anybody. And uh, the other thing that I think we have to remember is that this love, this love is something that matures in us as believers as we mature in Christ. Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Love. Oh, I'm sorry to wake you up. <laughs> Maybe I hit that pulpit. Uh, um, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And let me tell you something about fruit. When the green leaves grow on the tree, you, the fruit's not on the tree for you to pick. Have you ever noticed that? When spring comes, the ripe fruit's not on the tree for you to pick. What's there? Just a little blossom. You see, it begins with a little blossom. And then a little small fruit, and it begins to grow and grow and grow until it ripens. And that's the way it is with God's love that he works in our hearts. It is a growing experience as we get to know Christ, then the love of Christ begins to grow in our hearts. And we begin to mature in the love of Christ as we mature in Christ-likeness. You see? And so that's why it's important to get to know Christ better. Right at the, where we started in the beginning. Because the more I get to know him, the more I can love you and you can maybe love me. You see? It's vital and important. And uh, uh, that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The abundant provision, Romans 5.5, 5, and the growth in that provision in our lives as believers. Galatians 5.22. And that love has to grow. It should be growing in my heart and all of our hearts as believers. Let me just make a little side statement here because I think it's important. You don't love people because they bug you. Or, or I shouldn't say you don't love them because they, don't, they bug you. But we love everybody despite their foibles. That's, that's a lesson I learned as I realized that Christ 
love me despite the mess I was in. And if I have the love of Christ, I'm going to love every brother. And you know what I've found in the church, and I've been ministering for a couple of years. Uh, uh, you know, I've found that nobody is the same in their personalities and how they act and how they react and so on. And my responsibility as a fellow believer is to love them despite that. And uh, I, I trust by the grace of God that you love me despite all my foibles. You see? There was... There was uh, a song that was popular, some of you may remember it, in the 50s. <clears throat> uh, uh, but it had a line in it, everybody loves a lover. Everybody loves a lover. We love Christ because he was a lover that loved us. We love other believers because other believers love us. And as that grows, everybody loves each other because everybody loves lovers, you see. And, and that's, that's the way it works. So that's his acceptance. He was accepted because of the work of the love of Christ in his heart. That's why Paul used him. And the second is his approach, what I call his approach. It says he was trustworthy servant. Or better, trustworthy slave. Uh, you can put it anyway. The, the word that he uses for servant here is a, the word that, from which we get our English word deacon. And, and he says uh, uh, he, he was a trustworthy servant. Whatever you gave him to do, you could trust him that he would do it. That he would do it. I heard, I heard a pastor say, you know, I give people responsibility and I have to keep going after them all the time to make sure they're getting it done. Well, he's got a problem. They're not trustworthy. You should be able to say, uh, hey, hey, Sam, here's what I want you to do. And walk away and know, I know Sam well enough. I know he's going to do it. I know he's going to do it. He's trustworthy. And being faithful is being trustworthy. And to be trustworthy is to be like Christ. In Revelation chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6, it says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful or trustworthy witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, he gives us reasons in that verse why Christ is trustworthy. He says Christ was proven trustworthy by what he communicated. He was a faithful witness. He witnessed the things of God. And we must be faithful witnesses of the things of God. He was trustworthy because he was the truth. He not only spoke the truth, 
but he was the truth, and therefore he was trustworthy. He was trustworthy because he fulfilled the promise of the resurrection life to us and how it would affect us in our lives. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he dies, he shall continue living. And if he die, he will live forever. And this is our great thing. So I'm, I'm believing in the resurrection life of Christ. And I find him trustworthy. Trustworthy. So, and he is trustworthy because according to this verse in Revelation, he cleansed me with his blood. You know what that means? He cleansed me of all untrustworthiness. He made me trustworthy. You see, the great character change, isn't it? That Christ gives us. He makes us trustworthy. But the question is, how can this happen? How can this happen in my life? How can I become more like Christ, more trustworthy like Tychicus was? Why? How? What? Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, it says, he who calls you, who is God, is faithful or trustworthy who will also accomplish it. God will accomplish it. And God will do it. And God works, and God works in us. And as Paul says in Philippians, God works it in us so we can work it out. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work within you, both giving you the desire and the achieving ability. Isn't that great? We, we don't have to do it. God does it in us and for us and through us. But, but we can stop that by quenching the Holy Spirit, by being disobedient, by living in sin and not dealing with sin in our lives. So we have to do that. So his acceptance, his approach, his acceptance, he was loved. His approach, he was uh, uh, trustworthy. The third thing is we see his association. That is his association with Paul. He says, a fellow slave in the sphere of the Lord. In other words, Tychicus learned that he was not his own boss. He was a slave who had a master ruling over him. And so he was living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when someone's living and evidentially walking under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you know that they are the kind of people you want around you. 
because you know they're controlled by something that's divine and not human. And that is a wonderful thing. So that's his association. The fourth thing we see is what I call his ability. His ability. It says, He might come to know that concerning you also to encourage you. Also to encourage you. Now, that that word encourage is uh, uh, an interesting word in the original because the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, right? And, and the word that is used in the Greek, therefore the word comforter, is the same word that Paul uses when he talks about Tychicus being an encourager, but he uses it in the verb form instead of the noun form. The noun form describes what the Holy Spirit is. The verb form that he's speaking of regarding Tychicus is that Tychicus is one man who so walks in the Spirit that that gift of the Spirit to be someone who comes alongside and helps other believers is one of the things that is evident in his life. And I don't know about you, but if I knew somebody who was really struggling or maybe had questions in their Christian life, I wouldn't want to send somebody else who was really struggling. I'd want to send somebody who I know would come alongside and carry that person and help them through. And that's why Paul sent Tychicus. So, that's the story of Tychicus. And the third thing here I want to point out is the resource for Tychicus. We'll soon lose his name, then I won't have to worry about it. It says in verse 9, it says, with, or better, along with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all the things which are happening here. So, he sends uh, uh, Onesimus with him as a second witness to what is going on. He says, I'm sending them together. I'm sending these two people. I, I kind of was thinking about that last night, and I thought, Paul, uh, Tychicus, and Onesimus go to the church in Colossae. And uh, uh, Tychicus goes on, and he says, oh, you know, this and this is happening to Paul and so on. And Onesimus, yeah, but we can also add this, you know. He was kind of a prompter and a helper. And so he sends Onesimus. Now, remember who Onesimus was. He was Philemon's slave. You remember him? He was, he was a thief. He was uh, a worthless slave who never did his jobs. 
He was a deserter who ran away. But notice, notice, God transformed that man. God transformed that man. And that's what God does in our lives when he comes into our lives. He transforms us. He makes us into something that we never were before. And I think, I think as I think about that, that, you know, it should be one of the joys of our hearts to receive people like that and who have been sinners. They could have been bad sinners, good sinners, whatever kind of sinners they were. But we should, when God has truly transformed them and worked his grace in their hearts, we should accept them with love. And uh, uh, that's what Paul did with uh, uh, Onesimus. I, I won't go through all the details again as I just did, but first notice com his commitment. He was trustworthy. A thief who became trustworthy. How's that? A thief who became trustworthy. You could put all your money on the table and he wouldn't touch it. That's great. And then he was, there was a cohesion with him. He was dearly beloved. He was dearly beloved. And then I want you to notice his connection. Paul says here, and uh, he who is one of you, or better translated it, who is out of you. He came out of you. Uh, so we learn from that two things. First of all, that Onesimus was from Colossae. He came out of you. And because he came out of them from Colossae, therefore Philemon was in Colossae, and Philemon was an elder of the church in Philosi. Colossae, excuse me, not Philosi, Colossae. So we learn those two things, and it's important. And uh, 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 Paul, Paul sends him there knowing that it's a blessing to them to see this man who God has transformed. And I trust that by the grace of God, God will be working like that in our church. He will, we will have opportunity to see people transformed by the grace of God and come into our fellowship who have, for discipleship and growth and grace. And so uh, we find this so true. And then notice his concern. It says, he shall make known to you all things concerning this place. He was concerned with doing what he was told to do. And that's vital. So that's, uh, that's the uh, fruit that comes from faithful. That's the characteristics. Second thing, and quickly I just want to look through what I call in verses 10 through 14, the continued greetings from friends. Paul, Paul begins greetings, and he begins with uh, first Aristocrus. And Aristocrus was an interesting fellow because he was 
it says, Paul, Paul says here, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. What does he mean by fellow prisoner? Well, Aristarchus was arrested with Paul in Thessalonica and was put in jail and was still a prisoner with Paul in Rome. So he says, you're my fellow prisoner. I mean, we're all here because of the faithfulness to the ministry of the Word of God. So he says, uh, uh, he was this, uh, this special person. Then he works in verses 10, the rest of verse 10 and 11, uh, on what he calls Jewish co-workers, those who were Jews. And just to point out a couple things, if you have the King James Version, it says, Mark's sister, son to Barnabas. Uh, it doesn't say that in the original. It uses a word that can either be translated nephew or cousin. And most, most texts like the New King James and the NASB and most scholars agree that the word is cousin. He was Barnabas's cousin. And that's probably why Barnabas stood up for him and took him when Paul didn't want to take him anymore. And Barnabas not only took him, he helped him grow and mature. And then he did another thing. He took him to Peter and let Peter affect his life. So that's Mark. And then the name James, Jesus or Justice also sometimes is translated Joshua. It's the same root word. It's the same root word. And uh, that's, uh, uh, that's the co-workers. You'll notice in verse 11, he says, uh, for the kingdom of God who are out of the circumcision. That is, they're Jewish. They're Jewish believers. And notice what he says about these Jewish believers. He says that, he says these Jewish believers were, and, and uh, the, the word here is, uh, uh, Comfort to me. Comfort to me. That word really has the idea of comfort or exhorters. They, they were the ones that exhorted me and comforted me and helped me. And uh, uh, I think we have to realize Paul was one of the men that never shunned exhortation from other people. He didn't put himself above that. Then he deals with the Gentile co-workers. You look at verse 12 and he starts with Epaphras. And if you look at chapter 1 and verse 7, you'll find that Epaphras was the one that established the three churches in the Lyca Valley. Uh, Laodicea, Colossae, and Herothpolis. And uh, uh, even though he had established and set up those churches, his heart was still there. 
And it says that he prayed fervently for them. That word fervently is an interesting word. It's the, it's the word from which we get our English word agonize. Uh, agonizomai. That's uh, the word in Greek. And uh, uh, it has the idea, and it was used of people who were athletes in the games. And they would agonize for victory. They would agonize to win the crown, you see. And he says, he's agonizing for you so that you win the victory so that you become victorious churches. He's spending his life praying for you, praying for you, that you will come out victorious. Well, how did his prayers end up? Well, you look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and the only church we know of how they ended up was the church of Laodicea. They were proud and arrogant and spiritually dead. Even though he agonized and prayed over them. And uh, uh, that's the way the church goes and we see it today. The church uh, apostatizes, turns away because of the pressures that are around it. And that's what happened in Laodicea. They thought they were something, but they were nothing. And we should be careful for that in our own lives. And uh, then he talks about Luke and Demas. And let me just point out two things quickly here. Luke was faithful with Paul right to the end. He stuck with him through everything. Demas, Demas, according to what Paul wrote in, to, in 2 Timothy 4.10, he said, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. And the challenge to my heart was when I read that is, hey Dave, are you going to be a Luke or a Demas? Are you going to depart or are you going to hang on till the end? And my answer came in the faithfulness of God. I can't keep me, but he can. And we have to be careful that because of the love of the world, like Demas had, we don't forsake the spiritual things. And uh, finally, I, I just want to look at verses 15 through 18 quickly. He makes comments to the faithful. He said, uh, he says, salute or greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. And uh, I, I think, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, 
Yeah. And uh, he, he uh, by the way, that word that's translated greet or salute can also be translated embrace. What, what Paul was saying, give them all a big hug for me, you know, uh, just to show I love them. Yeah. And, uh, and we see that at that point there were still house churches. He said the church at Nymphus's house. And uh, uh, we have the blessing of a building we can come to, but uh, we may end up with house churches someday, the way things are going. So uh, be prepared. In verse 16, we see that this was a circular letter. He says all the other churches were to see it and receive it. And also we see that he sent a letter to the Laodiceans. And we don't have that. So we don't know what was in it. But if I look at the church, the letter to the church to Ephesus and the letter to the church in Colossae and their similarity, Paul's message was the same all the way through. So there must have been some similarity in uh, exactly what the message was. And then in verse 17, we see the words to the pastor. And I, I just... Seeing Pastor Tony's here, I can say this. Uh, I just want you to notice that he doesn't speak directly, but indirectly to the pastor through the people. Notice what he says. And say, say to Archippus, who's, who's to say it to Archippus? The church. He's writing to the church. So the church is to say this to their pastor. This is what they're to tell their pastor. He's given them instructions on what to tell their pastor. And the question is, why, why does the Apostle Paul direct the church to tell the pastor? If you look at what the pastor was told by Paul, it gives you the idea that the church is responsible for where the pastor takes the church. And the church, you know, uh, I've heard it, well, our pastor led us astray. No, you weren't diligent in watching your pastor and making sure he was doing the service he was called to do. No, I'm not telling you to pick on Pastor Tony, but I, I'm just saying we have a responsibility as church members for the direction our church is going. And we have to be aware. Now, notice Notice what the pastor is told. He is to keep his eyes on serving. He is to keep his eyes on serving. Uh, that uh, the word take heed is the, you could translate it, watch, watch out for. Keep your eyes on your service. Make sure your service is uh, the service it should be. 
And uh, by the way, that's a, pra a command that he's to constantly practice. And he, he makes it clear, secondly, that this was not Pastor Archippus's choice to be in the ministry, but it was Christ's choice. Notice he says, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. It was a ministry given to him by Christ. The problem with many churches today is we have too many pastors who are, are following an occupation rather than a calling. And to be in the pastorate, you must have a calling from Christ. You must have a calling from Christ. You, it's not your gifts and your abilities. They're nothing. It's calling from Christ, which you have received from the Lord. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, 16 and 17, he said, uh, uh, all I'm doing is preaching. He says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He says, I got to do it because, but he says, if I do it of my own will, then I can receive wages. But he says, it's a stewardship that was committed to me. It was, it's a stewardship that was committed to me. And so every pastor comes with this stewardship committed to them. And then notice it is continual. It says, in order to keep on filling it to the full. In order to keep on filling it to the full. The pastor's job never stops. There's no retirement. There's no retirement. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> There's no retirement from the ministry. And let me, let me just challenge you here. Whatever God has called you to do in the church, you do it to the end. You don't retire. Oh, I'm tired of teaching Sunday school. Oh, I'm tired of running the youth group. Oh, I'm tired. No. No, you're serving not the Sunday school, not the youth group, but the Lord. And so you just keep on going. Keep on going. And you keep on going till the one who called you sets you aside. And then finally in verse 18, it's Paul's personal greeting. He says, by the hand of me, by the hand of me, uh, if you, I'll give you a good word here. Paul always used what we call an amanuensis. How many of you know what an amanuensis is? Bob does. Scott does. Okay, good. Amanuensis is another word for a secretary. <laughs> but it's a nice big word. <laughs> you know. uh, so you learned a new word today. Uh, <coughs> but... Uh, uh, he says, I write with my own hand. Remember when he wrote to the Galatians? He wrote that whole letter himself. And he says, you see what big letters I write with. Because he had a vision problem. So he had to write big so he could see what he was writing. But he says, I'm writing this greeting with the hand of mine. And notice he asks for two things again. Prayer for himself. Prayer for himself. 
and blessing on the people. Grace upon you. Or grace within you. And so, this is God's word to us, and this is the end of the book of Colossians. <clears throat> Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that <clears throat> we will be challenged and uh, appropriate and live by your grace as people who are beloved, trustworthy, people who will be faithful to the end in the ministry to which you've called us. So thank you for doing that for us and for your work of grace in us. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.